0: Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cotzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope Sermon Series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotzi. There are many, many ways in which we experience pain and trials in this life. I mean, there are days like today, you just look around and see how many seats are empty because people are going through different trials and and problems. Health problems or, you know, all sorts of different types of issues that come up in life. Serious illness can shatter a family's hopes. Financial reverses can take away the tranquility of a family that otherwise would still be well-ordered. A problem son or a problem daughter could bring sadness, disgrace, heartache to a family, to a home. A tragic accident that alters forever the future of a family. It just, it's not difficult to find things like these. All we have to do is to just look around and we find that everywhere we look, we find hearts that are aching and need comfort and understanding. But as we do that, as we see that, and it's impossible not to see that, questions come to mind. Questions like, why? Why would God allow all this? Is it really fair for us to go through all these things? What we read today is a story about Job, a man from the land of Uz. What we find in that chapter that we read in chapter 1 of Job is that at least what he said about God is to some degree metaphorical. You find God, you find Satan coming before God, that's fine. But you find God asking Satan, "Where were you?" As if God didn't know it. Well, of course, God does know. God knows all things. He's all-knowing. He, he does not need to ask a question. So what you find in here is some of those things are worded not to reflect the way God actually is in His spirit, in His condition, in His majesty, but it's worded so that people can understand. And we need to realize that, these, that the people that this was, was uh, written for needed a simplified version. And so God doesn't mind doing that. God does not mind simplifying some concepts. But as we read it and understand that, we don't need to be overly simplistic. We can understand the depth, how profound the teachings of this particular passage, this particular book are. So let's revisit this chapter briefly and let's understand what are some of the lessons that God is sharing, some of the truths that God is telling us, and some of the answers that God is providing for us, answers that otherwise are very difficult to come. And in fact, we would be very much tempted to talk and think like the the friends of Job that you see in the following chapters coming up and, and addressing Job, thinking that that is the theology that we should have. While God himself, however, says that these people are wrong. They don't speak according to the truth, but Job did. Job is not a very easy book to read. It is an important book to read, but it's not easy because it it reaches deep into the hearts of the people and people's theology. Chances are that if you read the book of Job the first time, you think that the friends of Job actually have a point. But then you get to the end, and at the end, God says they are wrong. So if you're anything like me that would like to understand why God says they are wrong, you go back and read it again. And the second time you read it, you think that the friends of Job may have a point. But then you go back to the end and say, okay, God still says that they are wrong. And I don't quite understand why they are wrong until it finally dawns on you. And now when you begin to understand that your entire theology is changing. And you're beginning to understand God for the way God really is and not the way we imagine him to be, which is a big difference. First of all, verse 1. Look, the location of Uz is uncertain. What we know about that location, it was a fertile land near a desert. We find in verse 1 that Job was blameless and upright, which means he was without blemish of character, not deviating from God's standards. He was not taking advantage of other people. He was not, you know, deceiving others to gain, to earn his gain. He was quite wealthy, we'll see in a moment, but he did it in an honest way. He conducted himself in according to the ways of God. He was without blemish of character, not deviating from the standards of God. We also read that he feared God. That doesn't mean he was scared of God. It means that he was reverent, that he was aware of God's majesty Revered that and submitted to him. The concept of fear in that context means what moves us to bow down before God in His Majesty, realizing how awesome He is. He shunned evil. It means he rejected the opposite of God's character, and it also means he was not a willful sinner as his friends later accused him to be. Right at the beginning of the book we have God's testimony that he was not the person that his friends told him he was or he must be because their theology was flawed but if you read the rest of the book you see what I'm talking about so we find quite an individual here this is not an individual you would expect to get into troubles all the time this is not the type of individual that you would expect to go in looking for problems there are some people unfortunately that with their behavior they seem to be looking for problems and looking for difficulties but job was not one of them for sure verses 2 and 3 they tell us that he was quite a blessed man he had seven sons and three daughters and children back in those days especially were regarded as a blessing from god and if and a family of that side was a pretty common occurrence families tend to be tended to be large in those days but having seven sons and three daughters would be considered a great blessing job was also quite wealthy and blessed with possessions as well seven thousand sheep Imagine 7,000 sheep, what they can do for clothing and food. That's quite a lot. You can get quite a lot of wool from 7,000 sheep. You can get a lot of food. 3,000 camels. Well, they provide a great deal of an asset in terms of transportation, especially in the desert nearby, but also a trade value. And that's one of the reasons why later we find that the people attack um, the, the servants of Job to steal the camels. He had 1,000 oxen. Once again, think of of what that means um, in terms of food, milk, labor for plowing. It was quite quite a blessing. 500 donkeys, again, necessary, useful for transporting the harvest and and other things like that. And of course, with all those possessions, Job needed servants to, to provide the labor, the manpower, the help that was necessary for the land and the livestock. Verses 2 and 3 say, in fact, that Job was one of the greatest men of the East, which is understood as people in the Northern Arabia area who were known for two things, a certain type of wisdom as, as well as their wealth. And of all those people of wisdom and wealth, Job was one of the greatest. So he had quite a lot. You might say he was quite blessed. And the constant, the idea of losing that, now, you, you, you know, you imagine... How disappointing it is, you have five dollars in your wallet or in your pocket and, and you pull your, out your handkerchief and you don't realize your, your five dollars are falling to the ground, or you lost them. And then you go and you, you want to buy, I don't know, maybe some bread or a coffee or something. You pull out the five dollars, you realize you don't have the five dollars anymore, you lost them. That's quite disappointing, isn't it? But you see, when we lose something small, it's disappointing, but it's not devastating. But imagine having a lot and being accustomed to a lot and losing it all. Now, what we're describing here would be sufficient for many people to be so self-absorbed in their possessions and their blessings that they forget about God completely. They forget about their responsibilities and just be so absorbed in their tasks of maintaining their wealth and maintaining their blessing. Not Job. Job enjoyed all this, but he remained faithful to God. He remained a man of God. He remained an upright man, blameless, who would not forget the source of the blessing. Nevertheless, I imagine that with this many possessions and being accustomed to being blessed like this, well, can you imagine the turmoil that it goes through his heart if he were to lose it all at once? Verses 4 and 5, we find Job was very concerned about his children, and every time they held a party, he would offer 10 burnt offerings for their purification, one burnt offering for each one of his children. So he would specifically pray and offer that offering to God for each one of his children, making sure that, Lord, if they have sinned, either voluntarily or unknowingly to them, please forgive them. I think parents know what that means. So we find that Job here was an exemplary person. And all in all, no one deserves suffering less than he did. I mean, he did everything by the book. He did it with a a right heart. And so you would expect that of all the people in the world, he would not be the one that would have to suffer. But yet, few people in the world have suffered more, very few. Verses 6 to 8, the remaining part of this chapter, beginning with verse 6, introduces the trial and the losses of Job. That's where it becomes scary, in a way, because that's where we see this great and blessed man being tested to the core. In verse 6, we find the sons of God, which means the angels, The angels sometimes are referred to as the sons of God because they're sons in the sense that they were created by God. And we see the angels appearing before God and Satan, the adversary, pacing through the earth, as we see the description there in verses 6 to 8, could be an indication of some dominion over it and its people, as a number of commentators actually understand it to me. That is confirmed by 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, which states that we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So 1 John 5:19 tells us that Satan does have some power over the world. He does have control over many people and the trends of this world, and that is because God allows him to. So the Lord spoke of Job as his servant. Now, for God... To speak of someone as his servant, it's a title of honor. It indicates the dedication that Job had to God, and so it's quite a, well, quite a high standing in a way. Now, Satan may have exercised dominion over much of the world, but notice in the statement of God here, Satan did not control Job. Job surrendered and submitted himself to God, not to Satan. In verses 9 to 12, however, we see that Satan would not deny the faithfulness of Job. If Job was really not faithful to God, Satan would have had ample things to accuse him for. But what Satan did was even more cunning and subtle. Satan attacked the motives of Job. We talked about motives before, remember? And the importance of motives. And that's where Satan really attacks us. You may be doing all the right things and do them for the wrong reasons. And Satan will attack that. So Satan asked, well, hi." Uh, of course he's faithful. Does Job fear God without reason? And in so doing, he accused Job of serving God out of personal convenience, out of selfishness, not out of love. This does not just raise the question of the sufferings of the people who may be righteous, but goes deeper than that. It goes deeper because it digs into the motives that are at the root of our behaviors. Satan's argument is that we worship God out of convenience and selfishness to receive his blessings. Satan's argument is that, of course, they're faithful to you, God, because, hey, look at what they get out of it. You know, it's really tempting. We have to be honest with ourselves. It's very tempting to look at things that way. Not too long ago, I was told by somebody, you know, all right, what's wrong with you wanting to see some results of all the years of preparation and sacrifice that you accumulated? Meaning, what's wrong with you to go and find some better grounds, more fertile land so you can be blessed too? And honestly, there was no answer to that comment except for one. And I had to look at this person in the face and say, there will be one thing wrong, the motive. And for as long as there is a hint of that motive in whatever decisions we're talking about, then those decisions will be tainted. Satan suggested that if God were to remove the protection that he had placed around Job and and the blessings he had showered upon Job, then Job would just turn around and curse him and turn away from him. I've seen people coming up and being really angry and upset and says, but I've been trying to do the right things. I've been trying to be faithful. I've been trying to do, you know, I've been going to church for the last six months. I've been trying to be faithful to God and look what I get out of it. You know what that that means being angry at God. That means cursing God and turning away from him. That's what Satan said that Job would do if God stopped blessing him and protecting him. So God consented to test Job's faithfulness in his heart. And he allowed Satan to attack Job's properties and the people around him. But then God put a limit to what Satan could do. And throughout the book of Job, God remains in control. And he sets a limit and says, Satan, you can go this far, but no further than that. Who was in control? It was not Satan in control. It was God in control. Who allowed things to happen Well, Satan may have caused them, but God allowed them, and God set the boundary. So God said, Satan, you go this far, but you can't go any further. So who is in control? God is in control. Now, that opens a number of questions, because, you see, I heard people saying, blaming Satan for the things that happened to them. Usually it is in the context of, well, i got to fight against this, because Satan is trying to distract me. Satan is trying to um, stop me from doing the right thing, so i got to fight it. I remember thinking that way one time, everything was going wrong. My wife was pregnant with Daniel and we had given away our motorcycle, exchanged it for a little Fiat, which I drove, what, a whole two days? Something like that. Then I started walking to work for the rest of the year and things were going crazy. And I remember complaining, I gotta fight these things because Satan is putting all sorts of obstacles in front of me. And my mentor, Con Catherwood, asked me, when will you stop fighting against God? And I remember thinking that he didn't understand what I was talking about. Actually, I was the one that was not understanding what he was talking about. But I remember thinking he didn't understand what I was talking about. I mean, after all, look at all these things that Satan is doing against me. But really, let's go back to Job, who is in control, Satan or God? God is in control. So in my case, who should I look for? The problems that Satan was putting in front of me or God who would allow that and therefore stop resisting God and allowing God to do his work through those trials? And I'll tell you, it was not an easy lesson to learn. It was so much easier for me to think of these trials being from Satan and I have to fight them off and I have to conquer and I have to overcome and I, I have to do this and I have to do it. You notice that? It's all about what I do. It was easier because it would put me in control. But God forbid that we try to do that because we're gonna lose big time if we do that. The only way we win is in Christ, not by ourselves. And it is through the surrender as Christ modeled it for us, as Job shows us here in this particular context, is to surrender to the will of God and to the sovereignty of God and to the control of God. Then the other question that is opened by these events is who or what was on trial? You see, as human beings, when things go wrong, we put God on trial. We ask ourselves the question, is God fair to allow me to go through all this? Why, God, do you allow me to suffer like this? What's going on? What have I done to deserve this? All phrases you probably heard many times. What have I done to deserve this? Who who is on trial here? Is God in the fairness of what he allows on trial? Absolutely not. Is Satan on trial? No, not even Satan. What's on trial here is the motives of Job and his righteousness. Is he truly righteous from the heart with the right motives? Or does he act like a righteous person for the wrong reasons? for the wrong motives or for selfishness and convenience. That's what is on trial. And what is on trial today when things happen? Is God on trial and his fairness on trial? So should we sit up, stand up on on the stand of judges and judge God, whether he's righteous or not in allowing things to happen to us? Should we blame Satan and curse Satan and try to overcome satan and take and give orders to satan when even the archangel they had to confront satan said to satan may the lord rebuke you or should we realize that if something is occurring in our life it is allowed by god and perhaps what is really under trial is not god it's not even satan it's us it is our motives our hearts it's what we do things for Are we faithful to God only only when things go well, when everything is nice, when we get what we want out of it? Is God this dispensing machine and we put the right coin inside and punch the right buttons and here comes a blessing? Or maybe we are the ones that are being tested, whether we are faithful for the right reasons or not. But that was not the only reason. God also had some lessons to teach Job. Job was a great man, but he was not perfect. So Job had to learn some things. And we see in the latter chapters of this book, the book of Job, that God actually teaches him very important lessons as well. Job himself makes a confession. And he says, toward the end of the book, he says, I heard of you, but now I know. Hearing about God and knowing God are two different things. And I find it very interesting that way, way back then, at the time of Job, there was a distinction between knowing God about God, hearing about God, and actually knowing him, which implies having a relationship with him. It sounds quite Christian, doesn't it? <laughs> Interestingly enough, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So all these things that were occurring also provided an opportunity for God to teach some lessons to Job, and not just Job, to all the humanity through him. God knew that everything would work out for good. In his wisdom and his knowledge, God knew what he was doing. In verses 13 to 19, we see what happens then. Job lost everything he had and he lost it suddenly. You talk about receiving devastating news. You talk about the grief of losing a child. Well, imagine the grief of losing everything and losing all the children on top of that. You're talking about going through grief and going through a shock and going through trials and troubles? This is big time trials. Somebody comes and steals a car or steals a piece of property from us and we are all, uh, you know, falling apart and falling to pieces. But imagine what it would be to have all that much stolen from you. You're talking about 7,000 sheep, gone. 3,000 camels, gone. 1,000 oxen, gone. 500 donkeys, gone. All the servants, gone. All your children, seven sons and three daughters, gone. Imagine what it must have been like for Job. Just let that sink in for a sec. Remember when you lost something and how he felt. Now magnify that much. And imagine what it must have felt for Job to hear those news, to, to receive the, those messages that came one after the other within a, a short, very short period of time. While one was still talking, the other one arrived. While the other one was still talking, the third one would arrive. In a few moments, everything was gone. So what if that was the motivation that Job had? What if that was the where Job had placed in his heart? If indeed the motive of Job was to be faithful to God because of all the blessings, if indeed his heart was on the blessings and not on God, at this point Job would probably be very angry, desperate, stricken with grief to the point of really, like Satan accused him that he would do, turning around, cursing God and going his way. Verses 20 to 22, you see the response of Job. He tore his garments. That's an indication of turmoil and shock. It was an ancient custom, that when people were under that emotional stress, they would just rip the garments off of themselves, and, and, and it was a way of showing the grief, the pain that was inside. He shaved his head, which was a symbol of the loss of his personal glory, the loss of everything. It's also a symbol of mourning. He fell to the ground, not in despair, but in an act of worship to God. And he remembered that he was born naked and eventually he would die naked, meaning not taking anything with him. He didn't have anything when he was born and he would not have anything and he would die. And so he said, the Lord has given, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Imagine that. Imagine what kind of heart it would take to say, the Lord has given, the Lord has now taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in fact, in verse 22, is written through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. But wait a sec. Job did not blame God. And yet, Job gave responsibility to God. Job did not say "Well, people took. Job said the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. So he did give responsibility to God. He's saying God did this but acknowledging someone's responsibility, acknowledging that someone is behind something and blaming are two different things. You see, blaming is what the individual whose heart was on the possessions would do. If my heart was in the possessions that I lost and those possessions and those blessings were my motivation, my motives, then I would probably be blaming God and ask those questions, why God? Why, what have I done to deserve this? It's not fair. That's one way of cursing God and turning from him. But to say the Lord has given these blessings and now the Lord has taken them away, even though you attribute that to the Lord, you're not blaming him. You're simply accepting his sovereignty and accepting the fact that he's in control. In all of that, Job did not sin. That's an important statement. An important statement to keep in mind as you read the rest of the book of Job because his friends say the opposite. They say that all these things happened to him because he must have sinned horribly. The other thing to keep in mind is that difference between acknowledging that God is in charge and in control and blaming him. Because blaming is a way of judging someone. And judging God would have been a sin, a sin because we are not his judges. God is not on trial here. We are. Now, especially when we've done our best to be good Christians, It will be really tempting for us to fall into that path of judging God as we attempt to answer questions about His fairness for allowing faithful people to suffer. I remember in northern Italy one time I was called by an older man and we set an appointment that we met at a a cafe in town. And I remember sitting at that table with him and and hearing him asking a question, why? You see, he was a prisoner in the concentration camps, in the Nazi concentration camps, for a long time. And while he was in those concentration camps, he was not a believer. He did not believe in God. But he was surrounded by believers, Christians and Jews. And he heard these people praying and supplicating God and dying of illness, and dying of starvation, and dying slaughtered by the Nazis. And his question for me was, why? Why were these people who were faithful to God, who were relying on God, who were trusting in him, died all around me, and I, who was not a believer, didn't even believe in God, was spared? You see, he was putting God on trial. It was asking questions about the fairness of God. And I remember stumbling through that meeting. I remember not knowing what to say and how to say it. I did remember telling him though that maybe God had not finished with him. God had not yet done with him. That's why he allowed him to continue to live because God still had some work to do in him. But I hope that in some way, somehow God helped him to understand what should have been understood. That God is not on trial, but our motives are. And yes, when faithful people suffer, when the people of God hurt, it may be tempting to ask if that is fair, but after all, how fair is it for Jesus Christ Perhaps to suffer for us and if he was willing to suffer for us wouldn't we be willing to suffer for him as well where the question of fairness is raised the sacrifice of jesus christ makes it fair to begin with because he's not asking us to put up with anything that he was not willing to suffer for our sake we're not talking about a god who stands outside there somewhere far away say okay i want to see you suffer to see whether you're faithful to me or not we're talking about a God who comes to us, enter in, enters into our world, takes our suffering upon him and say, I want you to share them with me. I don't want you to suffer in vain, but as you hurt, as you suffer, I want you to share that suffering with me because I, I took your sufferings, your pain, your sorrow upon myself to redeem you. So that today, as we share with, with him in his suffering, We know that tomorrow we're going to be sharing with him in his glory. You see, God is still in control and he will continue to be in control. And it's not over until he says that it is over. And the mishaps and the tragedies that we go through in life are no reason for us to bail out. No reason for us to curse God and turn around and leave him behind. There is no reason for us to hold on to anything but God himself. Because throughout all this quagmire of things that happen in life. The one constant that we have is God himself. And we can go through highs and lows, ups and downs, but if we hold on to God with a pure heart and a sincere motive, we will have this constant in our life. We are okay because we know who we are regardless of the situations we find ourselves in. You are not the first person in this world to cry. Many other people have cried before you, and many other people are crying with you, and many other people will cry after you. But you're not the first person to be helped by God either. Many other people have been helped by him. Many people are being helped, and you can be helped and are helped by God as well. You know, nothing is impossible for God, we read in Jeremiah. That's why I wanted that to be read after the first chapter of Job. Jeremiah verse 27 of chapter 32 says that I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, the the God of all the people in the world. Is anything too difficult for me? Is really anything too difficult for God? Are our trials and problems too difficult for God to resolve? I mean, He created the whole universe. Can't He just address that little teeny trial that we go through? Of course He can. But because nothing is impossible for God, and God is a God of all, then we must remember that He is a loving God, that He wants the very best for us, not the worst. And then He's an all-wise God, that He knows what that best really is. And he's an an all-powerful God that he knows, I mean, he has all that he takes and the power that is necessary to bring it all about. We should never forget what Romans 8 reminds us. In verse 28, we read that we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Notice the statement again and again and again. Keep reading it and let it be something that carries you on and on. God causes all things, not just the good things, but all things to work together for, for, the, for the good of those who love him. So does it mean that when I'm in pain, God is working something good? Yes, exactly. Does it mean that when I go through a trial that I lose everything that I have, like it has happened in my life, that God is working out something good? Yes, it is. Does it mean that I see that good right there and then? No, it doesn't. I may not be able to see that good right there and then. And so it's the same for you. You may not be able to see what that good is at that moment, but you know you know that God causes all things to work out for the good of those who love him. So you know that even if you don't see it today, you will see it later. God will work things out. He's in control. He loves you, wants the best for you. He knows what that best is. Even, even though you think you know what your best is, you really don't. God does. He keeps in mind not your immediate best, but your eternal best. Because he has a purpose for all of us. And that purpose is not limited to this life. That purpose carries on for the rest of eternity. Then later, in the same chapter of Romans 8, in verse 37, it's written, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Notice that. Not by ourselves, not by our own strength, not in our own by our, in our own merit. We don't overwhelmingly conquer because we are good and strong in ourselves. No, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, God, Jesus Christ, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will have and inherit eternal life. For I am convinced, continues in Romans eight twenty thirty eight, for I am convinced that neither death Notice that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, we ask questions, why God? As if, because we're going through some trials, God doesn't love us anymore. We ask questions, what have I done to deserve this from you? As if God is on trial. But the reality is no, he's not on trial, we are. Our motives are, our hearts are on trial. And the love of God is upon us no matter what. You can be the most horrible sinner on the face of the earth and God still loves you. It will hate the sin. And you know why it hates the sin? Because that sin kills you. The sin kills the one whom God loves. You know, I have two children. Don't you mess with them because you're going to find my wrath. But you know why I hate what destroys them and what hurts them? Because I love them. Now multiply them by infinite and you have an idea of the love of God. God loves the people that he created so much that he hates the sin that destroys them so much. Not because he hates them, but because he hates what damages those whom he loves. And there is nothing on the face of the earth, not any trial, nothing at all, not even death itself that can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So I think you know the answer to our question today. He's got to blame when he hurts. People will say, oh no, when he hurts, we are to blame because in our sinfulness, we, we brought all the hurt upon us. Well, guess what? That may or may not be the case. It may be the case that we've been foolish enough to hurt ourselves and now we're experiencing the pain that comes from sin, but we have seen in the case of Job that that's not always the case. Sometimes we may be not guilty of anything and still suffer, but even so, God is not to blame. We may recognize that God has allowed that to happen and we can hang on to his promises that nothing in all of creation can ever separate us from his love. And that God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love him and hang on to those promises, even when he hurts the most. Because we know that sooner or later we will be able to see the glory that God is going to be manifesting in us by his grace. So we can join Job and say, well, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord because he loves us no matter what. And everything will eventually work out for good, let us pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the good times. Thank you for the hard times. We thank you for your love, for your wisdom, for your power. We thank you for what you have in mind for us, for the purpose you give us in this life, for the joy that you share with us. But we thank you also for the trials that mold us and shape us, for the difficulties that keep us humble, for the thorns in the flesh that remind us that we are but mortals and encourage us to continue to give glory to you and not to ourselves. We ask your forgiveness for asking the wrong questions in the wrong way and putting you on trial, questioning your fairness, questioning your love, your justice. We ask your forgiveness for all the times we've done that. We ask you, Lord God, that you would touch our heart and move us to recognize and to see who you for who you really are for that loving, wise, and powerful God that you are, so that we may rely on you and on your promises and on your word that all things will work out for good and that nothing in all of creation, not even death, can ever separate us at all from your love. Thank you for that love. We ask you that you would share it with us through your spirit and and grant us the ability to display that love to one another and to all people around us. We thank you. We praise you. We commit ourselves to you now. We do it all in Jesus' name.